Again, my name is Marshall. I'll be teaching on the passage that I'm about to read. If you have a Bible, it is on page, uh, it's Romans chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible, it's on page 945 of the Pew Bible. We're going to try this this summer. Usually we print the uh, words in the bulletin for the passage we're studying, but for a couple of reasons, uh, we're just going, one, the length of the passage. I'm not going to read the whole passage today, but it might save a little bit of paper, but also it's good to get into actually God's Word, uh, the physical book that it is, and especially for our children to see uh, where these things are. So uh, for the summer, we'll just kind of see where we are in the fall. We're actually not going to print the scripture in the bulletin. We're just going to use actual old school Bibles, uh, which is... I don't know, retro, I don't know what that is. Uh, But if you would turn to Romans chapter 9, again, it's Pew Bible, page number 945. And for all who are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the first 23 verses of Romans chapter 9, and then we will pray together for me as I attempt to preach on these verses. This is God's word, it's Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham, because they are offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this next time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
please pray with me. God, we come to one of the more difficult texts for us to swallow. Also happens to be a relatively clear text. So God, I pray that you would give us humble hearts to hear from your word. I pray that you would guard my mouth. I pray that you would guard the ears of those who hear. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you. Be with us, Lord Christ. We need you. And it's in your name's sake and for your name we pray. Amen. If you are walking down the street and you see a turtle on a fence post, if you see a turtle on a fence post, what do you think? Turtle on a fence post. We will return to that image, but I want you to hold on to that image, a turtle on a fence post, because in many ways, that idea, that image summarizes today's passage. Last week, uh, Pastor Nick preached a beautiful sermon wrapping up our study of the book of Genesis, a fascinating passage with two funerals, the funeral of Jacob and of Joseph, and the bones of Joseph in a coffin, in a box in Egypt. That's how the book of Genesis ends, a coffin, a box with bones in Egypt. The implication of that is that God's promises are yet to come. God's promises are in the future for these bones in a box in Egypt. Well, today we come back to the book of Romans, the book of Romans, which speaks to these promises that we heard of last week from Genesis 50. It updates them. Romans is a letter written by the apostle Paul to the church at the city of Rome. At the time he wrote it, the most important city in the world. And we spent several months, we spent several months in the fall covering Romans chapters 1 through 8. In Romans 1 to 8, this series title was Amazing Grace. And Romans 1 to 8 contains some of the most beloved and preached upon passages in all of God's Word. They talk about God's love for us, how we are justified by God, how we are sanctified, made holy, how we will one day be glorified. It speaks to us existentially because it speaks how God ministers to us in the midst of our groaning. Romans 1 to 8 and maybe even especially Romans 8 especially are beloved and have been loved by God's people. But it's amazing to me how many Bible teachers and preachers whom I love and respect, they stop at Romans 8. I mean, three of my favorite preachers and teachers, uh, one of them just clean stopped at Romans 8. <laughs> Uh, another one skipped Romans 9, 10, 11 and just picked up in Romans 12. Another one just skipped over Romans 9 altogether. I'm like, I, you're my heroes. I need you for this. They just skipped them. Just skipped them. We're not going to do that uh, for several reasons. Perhaps my foolishness being among those reasons. A couple reasons we're not going to do it though. First of all, we're not going to skip over these chapters because they're in God's word. One of the dangers of skipping around in the Bible is that if we skip around in the Bible, I determine what you hear. I, we, I determine, and I'm going to pick passages that I like to preach. I can pretty much guarantee I wouldn't choose this passage to preach, okay? I wouldn't choose the text that is in front of me. But the Bible is the Word of God, and we must let the Bible speak for itself. But also, I find my experience in over 20 years of being a pastor is that the passages that are hardest to preach and the hardest to read at first glance sometimes contain what we most need to hear, and more often than not, they are actually 
uh, impetus for massive growth and massive good news in our life if we will just take the time to do the work and to understand what the Bible is saying. So that is today. So let me illustrate it this way. For spring break, my family and I went to California. Allison's parents live in California. And while we were in California, Peter and I, my seven-year-old son, we did an overnight camping trip in Joshua Tree National uh, Park. And what we did, on, it was an overnight into the wilderness, and we hiked Warren Peak. Now, it's a fun hike, Warren Peak is, but it's pretty challenging for a seven-year-old's legs. There's a lot of work. And like almost every mountain that you climb in the world, Warren Peak is ascended by a series of switchbacks. You know, you go one way, and then there's a hairpin turn going back, right? If you ever hiked a mountain, you know the drill, right? You do the hard work of hiking, and then you come to a hairpin turn that goes the other way. But at the hairpin turn, you can usually see out, and the view is generally spectacular, right? And with each increasing hairpin turn, the view gets better and better the higher you get. Now, especially when you're leading a seven-year-old on a hike like this, the views are getting so good as you get closer to the top, you're like, maybe we should just stop here. I mean, this is really a good view. I mean, like, he's hurting. He's carrying a pack. He is hurting. Maybe we should just stop. But you press on, hairpin turn, hairpin, switch back, switch back, even better and better views. And so, and then you get to the top. Then you get to the top. And in Warren Peak's case, it's a nearly panoramic view. You can see where the Mojave and the Sonoran Deserts come together. You can see the San Andreas Fault Line. You can see the San, uh, Santa Rosa Mountains, the San Bernardino Mountains, the San Jacinto Mountains, all surrounding all of that because of the hard work of the switchbacks up the side of the mountain. Well, Romans 9 through 11 are a little bit like that. There's a lot of switchbacks and hard work to the top. Romans 1 to 8 are salvation, justification. They're existentially immediate and satisfying. But I want to suggest that Romans 9 to 11, and maybe even especially Romans 9, they take us even higher because they don't just show us our salvation. They show us God's cosmic plans and not just our story. They show us the very story of God himself. But getting to the top, it's going to take a little work. So if I can say it simply, Romans 9 is about election. Another word, not used in this passage, but other passages teaching the same thing, called predestination. This is about election or predestination. Now, several things before I get into this. First, you are not required to believe this to be a member of this church. In the interviews we did with these children, that is not part of uh, what is required to be a member of this church. It is required of the pastors. Uh, but the kids took vows today. There was nothing of election. You do not have to believe this. There are many good and godly people who do not agree. I don't know how they get around Romans 9, but they, they don't believe it, and they are good and godly people. Second, if you're hearing this for the first time, your mind maybe already just, just exploded. I remember when I first heard this, and honestly, it took me about two years to digest it. It was so offensive to me in my spirit. It was so offensive. It, it's going to take some time. If you're hearing this for the first time today, just be okay being in shock a little bit, okay? Um, to that end, I, I, I do want to make this resource available to you, What Are Election and Predestination by a man named Rick Phillips. It's free on the back table. Please pick up one. We've ordered more. I assume we will uh, give them all away uh, as, you, as you process this. But if you want to meet with Pastor Nick or with me, please email us. We'd love to talk to you about this. There's a lot of resources and videos. Uh, but again, if this is your first time hearing this, your, your circuit board may overload today. But I do hope you'll do the work, though. Let me just say this, Pastor, I do hope you will do the work, that you will investigate what we are going to talk about today. Because if you do, 
And if you're honest with yourself, and if you're honest about your own heart, and you're honest about what is really in there, and your own rebellion, and your own frailties, if you ever wonder, am I going to make it as a Christian? Do I really believe? Am I good enough? This teaching, this doctrine can give you such great comfort. You got to wrestle with it. You got to climb the mountain. But if you will trust me, there is so much relief. There is so much good news. To use another mountain illustration, there is gold in them there hills. If you will do the work. Okay, now Romans chapter 9. It is organized. Paul's a smart guy. It's organized around four objections that you have, that I have to this teaching. And he responds to those four objections, and these are my four points, that God is powerful to save, God is merciful, God is the creator, and God is glorious. Okay, now before we get into that, though, I want you to see the heart of the Apostle Paul. Look with me, Romans chapter 9, verse 3. He begins all this teaching about election and predestination with these words. Chapter 9, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself, Paul writing, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is an astonishing statement. Now, Paul is a Jew, but he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, a Gentile simply means non-Jew. If you are not a Jew... You're a Gentile. I'm guessing most of us in this room are Gentiles. I am a Gentile, okay? Okay, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's primarily writing to Gentiles. But after spending eight chapters talking about all the benefits of being united to Christ, of being a Christian, he turns his attention to the promises made to God's people, the Jews. And what he is saying in verse 3, he's saying, if, if more Jews or if all of the Jews could be saved, if all of what was true in Romans 1 to 8 could be applied to them, I would have it taken away from me. I would be accursed. I would go to hell. I would suffer God's judgment and justice if just my brothers can be saved. I do not know how to express this level of love. I know for a fact I would be willing to die for my son and for my wife. Would I be willing to go to hell for them? I hope. This is next level love. The only comparison point is Jesus himself who did go to hell for us. As one commentator writes, reflecting on Romans 9, 1, 2, and 3, this kind of love, I love this image, this kind of love is a spark from the fire of God's substitutionary love. The only thing that sparks this kind of love is understanding just how much God has done for us when he, as it were, experienced hell for us. So before we get into all of this, I want you to feel, he's about to be real rational, but I want you to feel the Apostle Paul's love and passion. But the first argument he makes is that God, verses 6 to 13, is powerful. God is powerful to save. The, anticipate, the, the objection that the Apostle Paul is anticipating, it's, 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 basically it's this. It's cool that all these things are true in Romans chapter 1. That's really cool, Paul. That's amazing. But what about, what about the Jews? They had all these amazing promises. They had a box in Egypt with bones. They had all these promises. They had the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All those promises. And yet, many of them do not believe. 
In fact, they actively reject Jesus. It seems, Paul, like the promises of God have failed once before with the Jews. Are they going to fail again, those promises of God? Paul replies, chapter 6, verse 8, It is not as though the word of God has failed. And then he goes on to say, this, bracket this for a sermon in July, when he says, not all Israel is Israel, we'll come back, that'll be very important when we get to Romans 11, chapter 20, uh, verse 26. Not all Israel is Israel. So hold on to that for, for July. But today, the word of God has not failed, he says. He's making a point, the Apostle Paul, he's making a point that all of the biological children, all the biological children of Abraham, the biological children of Abraham are not necessarily the spiritual children of Abraham. Okay, he uses two examples, verses 7 and 9. He talks about Isaac and Ishmael. But then the verses we'll focus on, verses 10 to 13, it's the same example, a little different. To make this point that not all the biological children of Abraham are the actual spiritual children of Abraham, he uses the example of Abraham's grandsons, the children of Isaac and Rebekah. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, I hope this makes sense because there's a lot of names. But follow with me. We'll read again verses 10 to 13. Verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, that actually, if you want to know, is Abraham's grandson. Verse 11, Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. While they were, this is twins in her womb. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 11, what's saying? Before they were born, before anything had happened, verse 12, their mother was told the older will serve the younger. And then verse 13, one of the most difficult verses to swallow in all the New Testament, especially for freedom and fairness-loving Americans, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, let me be clear. This is not talking about emotional hate. It is talking about salvation. God chose Jacob to be saved, and he did not choose Esau. Jacob is chosen. Jacob is beloved. Jacob will inherit the promises. But the point is not about Jacob. The point is that God and God alone is powerful to save. There is nothing in Jacob nor you or me that makes us saved. Jacob was not a better son. He was not from a different family, not from a better family. He's from the same family. Jacob was not more humble. He was not smarter. He was not more open to God. He was not better. God simply chose Jacob before he was born. Before he was born. If you see a turtle on a fence post, how did it get there? Someone put it there. If you see a Christian, there is only one way she got there. God put her there. God chose her. Now, friends, this is consistent with the rest of the book of Romans. In fact, it makes perfect sense following Romans chapter 3. You remember Romans 3? No, you don't. Romans chapter 3. <laughs> you, especially, you don't remember because it it's a long time ago, but also because this is the, what Romans 3 says. You're wicked. You're depraved. You invent ways of doing evil. And, friends, without God calling us, electing us, we're always going to be moving away from God. The only way to be right with God is a God who calls us. So this is consistent with the book of Romans, but it's also consistent with the rest of the Bible. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in his other letters. 
I think it's actually almost on every page of the scriptures. The apostle Peter speaks of it. And most significantly, Jesus speaks of it. I mean, it's so many places. John chapter 3, John chapter 6, John chapter 10. I'll just read John chapter 6. Jesus, this is Jesus. This is not Paul. This is Jesus saying, No one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So it's consistent with Romans. It's consistent with the rest of the Bible. It's also consistent with grace, the name on our door that we talk about so much. We've defined grace as unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God. We are saved, verse 11, not by works, but because of him who calls us, who chooses us, who shows grace. If you see a turtle on a fence post, there's only one way it got there. If you see a Christian, there's only one way they got there. But it's not just consistent with the scripture and Romans and grace. It's also consistent with history. I mean, the thing that I think people miss so easily, when you read the Bible, it is not a story of moral heroes. It's a story of people who are really kind of bad. I mean, Abraham sells his wife out. He doesn't trust God. Paul, David, and Moses, all three of those guys, they were murderers. Jesus' disciples, they had known Jesus for three years. They walked away. They deserted him, right? John, we're going to sing Amazing Grace in a moment, written by a man named John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. He was a debauched slave trader, right? Only are they saved because God has called them. But maybe most significantly, this is not just consistent with history and the scriptures. This is consistent with your story and mine, <laughs> Because you're not good enough. I'm not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not more humble. We're not more open. We are not. The only reason, the only reason that we are with God and saved is because God in his sovereign mercy called us. God in his sovereign mercy chose us. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hate it. This is actually such good news because you realize the burden is no longer on you. The burden is no, you don't have to be good enough to be a Christian. You don't. In fact, the only way you can be a Christian is when God sets his love and affection upon you. And I know that raises questions that we'll come to in just a moment. But one question it raises that Paul, he, Paul's reading our mail. He is reading our mail because he says this. Because he basically says, doesn't this seem not, not just? Look with me at verse 14. Objection number two. The first objection is God's word has failed. Second objection is, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Is there injustice on God's part? This is our second point, that God is merciful. Because Paul answers the question about injustice. Paul answers the question about injustice by talking about God's mercy. Verse 15. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. It is undeniable. God is just more than we realize. In fact, he cannot compromise his justice. And because God is justice and because we are broken, rebellious, and depraved, we deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's justice. We deserve God's curse. As Romans 3 has said, we're all guilty without excuse. We need mercy. We need mercy. And thankfully, God does not compromise his justice, nor does he compromise his mercy. He is both fully just. This is the good news of the gospel. He is both fully just 
and fully merciful. Because in the person and work of Jesus, God displays both his perfect justice and his perfect mercy. Because, friends, this is what happens in the crucifixion, that Jesus bore the weight of God's justice. Jesus faced the full weight of God's justice in order that he might be merciful to us. In our place condemned he stood. Yes, God is fully just, and thank God he is merciful. Let me use an imperfect illustration from a time a uh, hundred years or so ago. A judge is known for his justice. He is known for being just, that if you do this, this is the consequence, right? But one day his mom is brought in on theft charges. She has been caught dead to rights. She is guilty. There is no questions. Multiple witnesses. The punishment is to be flogged. This is 100 years ago. The punishment is to be flogged. What is this just judge going to do? He's known for his justice. But this is his mom. And he loves his mom. But he's just. What's he going to do? He sentences her to be flogged with a whip. But then he takes off his cloak, he comes from around the bench, and he gets near his mother, and he covers her with his body and says, now hit her with all your might. That is justice. That is mercy. Friends, God's justice is real and awful. But if I may say it this way, in Christ, God's mercy conquers his justice. God's mercy conquers his justice. Or to say it as it likes to be said today, love does win. Love does win. It's not this like cheap hashtag, you know, sentimental love though. It is a costly and beautiful love. Love wins the love of God in Christ that is merciful and just. Now, but internally you're still like, okay, maybe. But that still does not seem fair. Again, Paul is reading our mail. He's anticipating the next argument. He's so brilliant. Verse 19, he asks the question that is on many of our minds. Why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? As one commentator said, I love the way he puts it, the objection that Paul is raising is this. How can God blame us for anything since he is in charge of everything? How can God blame us for anything since he is in charge of everything? Now, I want to suggest the answer that the Apostle Paul gives is at least initially emotionally unsatisfying. I'm earning my salary today, by the way. <laughs> it is initially emotionally satisfying, but I want you to see that you actually agree with the point he makes. And you're going to need to wrestle with this. Verses 19 to 23, God is the creator. Let me read again verses 20 and 21. What is God's reply to the, to the objection that it is not fair? But who are you, O oh man? To answer back to God, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonorable use? The answer God is giving is I am God and I do what I will with my creation. Now that's offensive, right? You're, you're offended. You're like, I don't like this God. But let me tell you something. You actually want this to be the answer. Let me show you. My friend John Stone, who did preach on this passage, thankfully, he helps me here. We agree this is the answer because it gets to a fundamental, one of the fundamental debates in America today. Since school went online during the pandemic, 
and parents started seeing what was being taught and not taught in school. There's this moment for all the parents, like, wait, (laughs) we get a say in what our children are taught for the simple reason that they are our children. We get to say what our children are taught and what they're not taught. Now, there is, there's limits to that line of argument. There's a nuance there, but stay with me. Understand the point. To whom do our children belong? To whom do our children belong? You don't want schools teaching children, your children, what you disagree with. Why? Because they're your children. <laughs> they are your children. We get to say what happens to our children. Again, there's limits and nuances. But they're our children. We get to say. And God is saying. I am God. I am God. I am your father. I am the creator. And I get to do what I will. Again, it's not emotionally satisfying. Hang with me. But I do think you can see the point. Now, there's at least three challenges, and it probably should be a month-long series, but I'm never going to do that to myself. Um, and I'm going to deal with these challenges in increasing difficulty. So the first, actually crazy enough, is the easiest. And I don't have time to go deep into this, but the first objection, the first challenge to this is free will. Why do people do what they do? Now, this is a huge philosophical problem, and at some level, the philosophy and the culture is actually kind of coming back to the Christian view on this. I'm not going to get into that. You can talk to me afterwards about it. But the Christian, So I'm just going to give you the Christian view. The Christian view is that God is sovereign, which means that God works through our choices. We make responsible choices under the sovereignty of God. Okay, we make responsible choices under the sovereignty of God. The clearest example is actually last week's sermon. One of the clearest examples in all of Scripture. Because if, if you don't remember, I'll try to set the scene for you. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons. One of them, his name is Joseph. His brothers hate him. And so his brothers sell Joseph into slavery. And that slavery leads to imprisonment. That is an awful, terrible thing to do, Right? But God is working through all this because once Jacob, he ends up in Egypt, which is far from his home, and once Joseph gets to Egypt, he is actually raised to the pinnacle of Egypt and is able to save Egypt and all of that region of the world from a famine that is coming. Okay? So this terrible, horrible thing that these brothers are responsible for results in that corner of the world being saved from an awful famine because of Joseph's leadership. And Joseph says it this way. We heard this last week. What you intended, their brothers are all freaked out. They're afraid that Joseph's going to kill them at the end of the story. And Joseph says, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. God works through our choices for his sovereign ends. So what do you do with this? Some people are like, well, what about prayer? And what about sharing our faith? Actually, I think believing these things drives us to do, it certainly did for me when I, when I, when I digested this. It's actually what drove me into ministry. Because once you start to understand that God is powerful to save and God is powerful to answer prayers, you actually start to pray more. And once you start to understand that God is merciful, you want everybody to know about it. And so you talk about it with your friends and with your neighbors. It's actually this doctrine that drives us to talk to people about Jesus. And it's this doctrine that drives us to our knees because he's the only one who's powerful, who hears our prayers. Second challenge. Is God the author of damnation? Now, I don't have time. I'm not going to take the time to do the grammar on this. The grammar is really clear in verses 22 and 23. But the answer is no. God is not the author of damnation. I'm going to, instead of read from the scriptures, I think it's best to use three people from Britain. A Welshman, an Englishman, and an Irishman. 
I'll, I'll quote the Welshman first, Martin Lloyd-Jones. God is not the author of damnation. He says, some think, Martin Lloyd-Jones, greatest preacher maybe in the 20th century, some think that God deliberately made some people that they might go to hell. That is a lie. It is taught nowhere in Scripture. No one is forced to sin. If anyone is unsaved, it is entirely because of the mercy and choice of God. If people are lost, it is entirely their own responsibility. End quote. Now I'll quote the Englishman, John Stott. This is, these actually they reflect the Welsh, the English, and the Irish. Uh, the English is the most clear theologically. John Stott, if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. If anybody is saved, the credit is God's. This is a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve, but is consistent with Scripture, history, and experience. End quote. But then the one that most, might help you the most, interesting uh, from an Irish man named C.S. Lewis, he says this, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Now, it's actually a more complicated idea than that, but that's an evocative image. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. God does not create people to send them to hell. But the third challenge, and the most personal, we're talking about election. What about my friend? What about my family member, that person I love? What about... What about me? What about me? Am I elect? Am I chosen? Let me start with you. If you care and you're asking the question, that's good news. Probably so. Cling to the promise. Cling to the promise. Lean into this. Because if you're asking the question, the answer is almost certainly yes. For others those people that we love. Let me be very clear. We do not know who and we do not know when. We do not know who and we do not know when. I was with somebody this week who told me about another person who had prayed for their father for 50 years. And that father came to faith on his deathbed three weeks before he died. We do not know who. Anybody tells you they know who's elected? We don't know. And it may be most everyone. We don't know. We don't know the numbers. We don't know the percentages. We do not know him, who and we do not know when. We trust. We have to trust God. So what's the point of all this? Why does God do it this way? What, what, is, what is going on? We don't fully know. Let me start there. And We, we don't fully know. But the short and clear answer is God does this for his glory. The fourth and final point, this is for God's glory. And here we're not at the top of Warren Peak. We're at the top of Mount Everest where we don't see everything, but we see a lot. Verse 17, let me read these verses. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in the earth. And then verses 22 and 23, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power and this is in the passive, this is the grammar point from earlier, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory. This is active for mess vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Why does God do this? It is for his glory. The word that keeps getting repeated there in 22 and 23 is glory. Glory. And that is shorthand for the final destiny of God's people. When we will see the splendor of God shown forth without shadow, without diminishment, without hiddenness. 
Now we see as through a, dark, a glass darkly, then we shall see face to face. We will be at the crest of the mountain. The work will be done, and we shall finally see God as he is. You see, friends, there's something about God that he is compelled to show his greatness in all its aspects. He shows both his judgment and his love, his goodness and his mercy, his truth and his love. He shows forth his glory. Why does God do this for his glory so that he can see, that we can see all of the aspects of who he is? Now, for the next two chapters, Romans 9, 10, 11, the Apostle Paul is going to make this extended argument. And at the end of the argument, at the end of Romans 11, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul says, I've said everything I can as best as I can. I don't know what else to say. And this is how he ends Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of God and who has been God's counselor? Who has ever given a gift to God that God should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And end quote. For reasons that we don't totally understand, this is part of God's revealing the very nature of who he is in all of its different aspects. It's justice, mercy, truth. Love, judgment, and grace. Let me pray for us. God, these are, uh, these are good words and they're glorious words, but they are hard words. And I pray that you will give all of us the time to reflect on them. Those of us who have been familiar with them for many years, those of us who are healing them for the first time, time. Help us to know again and afresh your love, your grace, your truth. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.